you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the first chapter of the book of John. And we're going to be looking in verse 29. Um, We spent three or four months on the prologue. Took us a long time to get through the 18 verses. Very, very foundational. Not just to John's gospel, but really to to the proper knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Because if you think of Jesus Christ as a great teacher, or even not a great teacher, but just a person uh, who lived a long time ago, suddenly you're missing what he's doing. John is claiming that everything that he's going to tell you about Jesus, every image that you see, is God Almighty living as a man. That's what his claim is. He's being very, very forthright at the beginning to tell us this. Uh, when we get past that 18th verse and we start into the, into the first uh, of the accounts, we are back to the, of John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist was introduced to us early on, uh, verses 5, 6, 7, uh, we meet John. And we see in, in verse 7 that John came as a witness, uh, to bear witness to the light that all men through him would believe. So John's purpose was a forerunner. He was to prepare people's hearts so that when the king of Israel was presented, when the son of David, the Messiah who was promised for, for centuries, was presented, the people would be ready to respond. Uh, and it, it's interesting, too, because when people came to, to John, they, they came from everywhere. It, it, it says in, this is Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 5, and there went out to him all of the land of Judea, all of Jerusalem, and they were baptized by him in the river, river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John was doing this job. John was, as, as it said in Malachi, turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children, that he was in the power of Elijah, returning all things as it should be so that when Jesus was now presented, the people would be ready to see him. Uh, God presents Jesus after preparing us uh, to see him. Now, this is John the Baptist who, and, and we know from other, from other gospels that Jesus was the cousin of John the Baptist, that John's mother um, was, was a cousin to Jesus's mother, Mary. And though that that seems that Mary certainly knew, uh, that this was, that this was the person that would save, um, his son, or save his people from their sins, Zechariah, John's father, knew there was an angelic, an angelic messenger sent to them when, uh, when, uh, Elizabeth was, uh, was a very old lady when she had a baby, so it was miraculous. But even after this, you're going to see that in this passage, towards the end of this passage we're going to read together, John claims he did not know who the Messiah was. It wasn't until God told him exactly who the Messiah was that he knew. And as soon as he knew, he presented him. Okay. Now we're going to talk about most of this next week. We're only going to look at the first verse today. But let's read from verses 29 through 37 of John 1. And then I'm going to limit my remarks to verse 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the spirit descending from a heaven like a dove and abode on him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day after John stood and his two disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So this is John acting as the prophet who couldn't see, that was then given eyes to see exactly what no other prophet had seen. So John is serving really two roles. He could prophesy in advance before totally knowing something because things were murky to prophets. They knew what God had said, but they didn't fully understand. They didn't internalize often what it was that they were talking about. Uh, And later uh, in the Gospels or in the epistles, you would have loved, the prophets would have loved to see what you see, Jesus said. But they never saw it. They they could not quite get the whole picture together. They only could say what God was going to say, that it would all come together uh, in Jesus Christ. But John, knowing Jesus Christ since he was a child, knowing that he was related to him, did not know that this was the Messiah and waited. But when when he was baptized, and John does not give an account of the baptism, though the other Gospels do, and we'll look at this since we'll talk about this later. He doesn't give an account, but when Jesus came out of the water and this, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the, in the form of a dove, that was what God had said. This is the Messiah. This is the person that you point to. And he said, behold, look at this man. This is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now, if all Jerusalem and all Judea has coming to John, so many people coming to John that the religious leaders have sent an, uh, an embassage to them or a, a deputation in order to find out what's going on. Why is John? Why is this religious revival occurring? Why are everybody coming out to the boondocks to see this guy dressed in in weird clothes, um, preaching and baptizing in water, which is not done? What's going on here? Um, they realized, even the religious leaders realized that something big was occurring. So many people were there, scads of people, and John is pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus. And he has an audience to do it. You have to realize, God brings the audience, and the message is not about yourself. The message is about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Now, it's interesting when you see this, um, all of these people then had to understand what he just said. He makes a comment that seems very strange and very strange to us. He's, he had, it's pictures. There's pictures in your mind. You have the idea of a lamb taking away the sins. What does that mean? Um, the sins of the whole world. And so when, when these people, you have to remember they were prepared. Maybe that's what I want to say the most. They were prepared 
John had already preached to them. They were ready to hear the message. So they have to then take that message and say, what does that mean? So that you actually turn your eyes to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if that means nothing, to know that God loves you doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. There's no threat there. To say Jesus Christ will save you from your sins means nothing to anybody. Before you're ready, before you know you've offended God and God will judge you in righteousness, that means complete fairness. He's not going to grade on a curve and you're not going to get by with anything. That panic that attacks your heart prepares you then to know that that Messiah is your deliverer, that he's a savior, he's a redeemer, and you put your faith in him. Well, he has to be introduced. And this is what John is doing. He's introducing all of these people of God who are coming to him for no other reason than that they want, they know they're not right with God, and they want that to change. And then John points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. So I'd like to break this into the most obvious of places. I'd like to break that sentence down into three parts. So we're going to look at the first part. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. What in the world does that mean? It seems so confusing. The second one is that this Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And then the third thing is that John's command to all the people that were standing there, look upon this man. Look upon him. Behold him. View him. Perceive him. Take it in. Know what it is that I'm telling you so that you can then do something about it. So let's begin then. John, uh, John is showing him with pictures. Now you have to realize that these people were Jews. And even if their hearts were completely far from him, and even if they were a completely secular people, not really God's people at all, God had stirred them towards at least knowing that something was wrong. He had alerted them. There was something niggling deep in them that they were not right, that they must turn back to God, that God is not pleased and that if they were to die, they would be in a panic situation. They knew it, and they were doing something. They didn't know, but they heard that John was preaching, and so they took a vacation, and they went out to the middle of nowhere to listen to him preach, not realizing even who he was, and it was such a strange person, and he wasn't very, he was grouchy, and, but at the same time, so many people heard him that they would come back and tell their friends, and then other people would take the same trip. So everybody in Judah was being stirred up in some ways. Now these are the people that John then points. So what did they think when John pointed and said, Jesus is the Lamb of God? Well, these are Jews. And Jews went to Sabbath school. They went to Saturday school. They, every time they, they went to Sabbath school, they, they read the Old Testament and they heard story after story and they, they went through the entire Old Testament over and over again. And they may not have understood what God was up to and they might not have been able to trace with their finger all that God had planned through the centuries. But they did know a bunch of pictures because God teaches us like you teach a small child. You teach a small child with big, bright, colorful, easy-to-see pictures and images that then have significance later. You often teach a kid, before he truly understands what he's doing, you, do, you, you learn the presidents. Before you ever knew what a president did, you learn, their, you learn them in order. Or you learn all of the states and what their capitals are, long before you ever visit Minnesota. Okay? And long before those people who think West Virginia is still part of Virginia, before they come here. 
Okay? You're, you're, you're like, well, third grade, didn't third grade teach you anything? No, West Virginia's been a state for a long time. That is what they are. So they know these pictures. And so what was their thought? I wrote down four thoughts. What could they be thinking? Okay? There, look, that's the Lamb of God. Okay? First thing I wrote down is they remembered that Abel offered a lamb that was accepted by God when Cain's offering was rejected. That's the first time we see the picture of a lamb in the Old Testament. First story, and a story that you would teach even a, a four-year-old. You would easily teach a four-year-old this story, that, that Cain brought an offering and Abel brought an offering and God accepted Abel's offering. Now, the ground had been cursed, if you, if you remember, Adam's, for Adam's sake, the ground had been cursed. And when Cain brought his cornucopia, the beautiful things of the ground, it's not that there wasn't a quality issue there. It wasn't that he brought them, uh, you know, all yucky, gross, rotten apples. But it was the fact that God did not want that. It wasn't something that would appeal to him. Man has been separated from God. And now, why, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But because God made a promise to man in the garden, because he made a promise, he held off his judgment. And it's still being held off. God's hand held off judgment for mankind in, in an attempt for him to offer a, a solution. And over the centuries and centuries, the Messiah was promised that conquering seed of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. Well, Adam... And Eve had children and two sons, and Cain and Abel both knew that they had been thrown out of the Garden of Eden, that they lived east of Eden. And when they realized that, God had to say, you don't come before me without blood. You must come with a sacrifice. You are guilty, but I want you. I want you to come to me. I want you to come and offer a sacrifice. I want to accept you. But I'm not going to accept anything you give me. You don't just make it up as you go. You give me what I ask for. What God asks for is the Lord Jesus Christ. He will accept you if you have the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not accept you under any other circumstances. It does not matter your labor, your furious labor, your, your hours and hours and hours of laboring for his kingdom means nothing. There is no earning anything with God. Because we have, are fallen, we come to him in our only hope, and that's in the Savior of Jesus. And this picture was a lamb, okay, the first one to Abel. Now, the second thing I wrote down is they remembered Isaac's question to Abraham. We read this together. Abraham was told, I want you to go to the mountain of Moriah, which happens to be the same hill that Calvary's cross is located on, this very same hill. And I want you to offer your son, the one you've waited a hundred years for, the one you named laughter, the one that your heart adores, and I want you to offer him to me as a whole burnt offering, a, a, a fellowship or devotion offering. And, oh my goodness, the crisis that went through that man. He chopped the wood. He got on his, on his mule with his servants and his son and traveled three days to get to this place. And then he told the, the servants, you stay here with the donkeys. The boy and I are going to go and worship, and we'll come back. On the way up the hill, Isaac is carrying the wood. 
and the knife is in Abraham's hand, and the fire is in Abraham's hand, and they're climbing the mountain. And Isaac says, well, I see the knife, and I see the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the most prophetic, beautiful thing, God himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice, my son. God himself. Now, Abraham was speaking beyond his ability, but you have to remember that Jesus, as he was speaking to the Pharisees, said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. God was showing him things that Abraham couldn't possibly understand. And that I promise you that the blessing that was promised to Eve is coming through your son, Isaac. And Abraham later in the book of Hebrews was basically had the idea, okay, Isaac has no children. The promise is coming through Isaac's children. God will raise him from the dead. That's all he could think of because he told me to do something. I'm going to trust him. And he promised something. He's going to do it. It's impossible that both could be existing. So if, if I have to kill him, God will raise him. So he himself will, will provide a lamb. That's the second thing they thought. Wrote down the third thing. They remembered that God commanded Moses that a lamb should was to be slaughtered and the blood to be put on the doorposts of the house. The lamb was then to be completely eaten by every member of the fam- family. Now, that is amazing. They did this every year. It was the Passover. It was the main celebration. It was the main holidays in the whole year that they remember being delivered as slaves. They were slaves in a foreign land, and they were, that was the very night that they came out. And that, that blood on the door was a mark that, that kept them safe. That the death angel, as he was, as he was wholesale destroying the, the country spared anybody in a house marked by the blood of a lamb. Now, these are powerful, powerful images. So John is saying, that is the lamb of God. That is the lamb of God. So then they they go, where else is there a lamb? And then they realize that in the law of Moses, that all of them held to, there were lambs everywhere. Every morning, a lamb had to be sacrificed. Every evening, every week, every month, and every year. Every sin of every individual person had to be paid for with the blood of a lamb. Every time I sinned, I don't even understand what that means. Not just that I sinned and I need to bring a lamb. Every sin of every individual had to be paid for with an individual sacrifice of blood that you did yourself. I would have had to brought an observed lamb to the priest and with my own knife bled it out at the gate before the priest would have accepted it. It was my act because it was my sin. It had to be covered. This blood of this lamb was seen as an atonement. And all an atonement is, is a cover. It covered God's holy eyes because God judges me. God is holy, and I'm not holy, and he looks and he weighs it. He measures me, and I'm not right. The, the scales do not come out in my favor any time, and God wants to love me. That is the absolute, that's the tension that exists in the Bible. God wants me, but at the same time, I'm unacceptable. So the blood of a lamb was required to cover it so that God would not see it. In fact, 
Every year, the Holy of Holies, a lamb was killed, and the blood was poured on the gold lid that held the Ten Commandments. And God's presence dwelt in Shekinah glory above the lid of that box. And nobody saw him. Year after year, the high priest came one time a year with an offering. And he poured that blood on that gold lid. And now God himself could not even look at his own law without looking at the covering of that blood. It covered us. It protected us. It shielded us. It is the cleft of the rock that God hides us in so that we can be with him and not be destroyed by him. And John told all these people, standing around in the hot, in the 120-degree desert, looking, and here's Jesus. And he said, that is the Lamb of God. Now, the second thing that I wanted to talk about is that he didn't just say he's the Lamb of God. But this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That is so different from any of the pictures that they knew about. A lamb's blood did not take away the sins of everybody. It only took away the sins of God's people. Anybody that was not God's people was not right with God at all. That's why you think of the centuries that the Jews have been oppressed. Part of it is their arrogance. They're positive sure that nobody else but them will be saved. They're positive sure. And that gives them an arrogance. They're the idea of, I'm superior and you are not. You are the castaways. You will all go to hell. In their mind, they're protected because of their name. They're protected because of their family. It's, they have not considered the fact that they can be descendants of Abraham without being sons of Abraham. That doesn't even make sense in their head. And so they have this idea that they're protected just because God chose them as a people. Well, to take away the sins of the world is offensive. Why would God save the others? Do you remember Jonah sitting up on a hill, crying his eyes out because God was going to spare Nineveh, who took a day to walk around the edges of the town? And that God said, do you know how many little children are in this city that don't know how to count their fingers? There are so many people here. Do you have no compassion for them at all? God has compassion for them. God wants them to be right with him. And the idea that the whole world would be involved is absolutely new. New. That this barrier that would separate the Jews and the Gentiles was unthinkable. Absolutely amazing. And even the early Christian fathers had a lot of... of, They had to really think this through. How does God incorporate the whole world into his church? So that all of us are equally saved in front of a holy God. That, that is, that is, takes the entire book of Acts to explain. It's actually amazing that the fact that an Ethiopian eunuch who is from Africa coming into Jerusalem to worship, the apostle Philip comes to him and he's in his chariot reading Isaiah. And Isaiah says he was a sheep. He was a lamb led to the slaughter that never opened his mouth. And he says, who is he talking about? I don't even know what this means. It means nothing to me. Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? And the Bible, that beautiful verse says, from that passage, he starts right there at that verse and preaches Jesus to him. That you can take the Bible anywhere, open it to anywhere, and you can preach Jesus. Jesus is everywhere. Everywhere. Now, he's clear as a bell, 
when John allows him to show up in the next couple verses, and you see him for the first time, you hear him speak, and you act, watch him act, you're looking into the very person of God. You're seeing what God is, what he likes, what he thinks, how he acts, what he wants. You're watching it happen right before your eyes. If you're prepared, you have to be prepared. That truly is reason I spent four months on the 18 verses. You must be prepared so that you know you're looking at God. Then when you know you're looking at God, you stop and you weigh it. You watch it. You see it. You see, what does this mean? What does it mean to me? So the sins of the whole world would have absolutely made them scratch their head. Okay? So the, the idea of the whole world, I, I just, in my notes, I just wrote down, the nature of Jesus' work is all-encompassing. It's, his mission is every part so when John is saying this is the this is the lamb, he's not just getting you a picture of the Old Testament that your sins need to be covered. It's the identity of Jesus. It's who he actually is. It's his mission. His mission is that he came as the redeemer. He came as the price payer. He came as the sin bearer. He came as the sin taker awayer. That that was his purpose. He takes away the sins of the world is what Jesus does. Because he is the God of creation. He is that eternal God that we spent, that we saw John show us before. He's not just a guy. He's not just a nice person. He's not just a smart person. He is God coming to rescue what could not rescue themselves. And so it is a, it's a strange thing that we have to see that the death of Christ was a voluntary sacrifice. He did it. It was his idea. Jesus said, I laid down my life. I will pick it up again. He put himself to death, and he rose himself from the dead. And that is absolutely amazing. This says, for everyone. That it's for the world that he did it. That there is no one excluded. No one at all. There is no one with a past scarlet, too scarlet, too gone. There's no one that can say, I'm disqualified because all of my family were of a different religion, or I'm disqualified because I have a past that that showed that I was an enemy of God and everybody knows what I've done. No, there's absolutely not. There is nothing, nothing that you've done that can't, can't be sacrificed by the Jesus, the eternal, Jesus, the infinite. You have to realize that the person of Jesus is infinite, That's what John went to great lengths to show. He's God. He's infinite. And when he suffered, he suffered infinitely. And he suffered with a, he as a person was infinite in his dignity. You have to know that that's why hell will be eternal. Hell will be eternal. The punishment will be eternal. The banishment will be eternal. Because I have offended and he infinitely dignified person. My offense is is infinite. It's not a big deal is what most people think. It's the biggest of deals. The smallest affront that you have made to the Lord God this day. Erase every sin you've ever committed in all of your life, every hard, thoughtless thing you've ever done, and the sins you've committed in the last 15 minutes would keep you away from God's glory. In the last 15 minutes... We've all sinned. We've not loved God as we should. We've not loved each other as we should. We've broken his commands and we've offended him. 
And God is the only one that knows what that means. And Jesus came as the lamb. And he came as the lamb. It was his purpose to come. He's the one who said, I'll go. I, you, thou hast prepared a body for me. I will go and meet this. It was voluntary. It was sacrificial. And it was an act of love for humanity's sake. And for his own glory's sake. Jesus fights for his own glory. You realize he's winning a kingdom here. And I, the fact that I'm part of his trophy blows my brains. How in the world could I be part of Jesus' trophy? But he took me. He took me that should be ruined, that should be thrown away. And he pulled me up, and he set me on a rock higher than me. And I will forever not understand what he did. It will take eternal life for me to even come close to understanding what he did for me. And so when John is saying, that's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, it's all of us. It's everybody included. There's nobody off limits. The whole idea of the people of the Jews being God's favorite people suddenly becomes something, it's not his favorite. It was his favored people. It was the people that he put his his law to. He showed them who he was. He fought for them actively on purpose, delivered them and gave up other cities for. He traded cities for them. But he always intended that all men would be. All men failed in the garden. All humanity were the sinners. And he intends that that garden will can be absolutely what it was intended to be. The Garden of Eden will be where we will leave, live forever. And it will be all humanity. Everybody that will be alive will be God's people. Just as he intended. God doesn't get... God doesn't lose. He gets what he wants. And for whatever reason, and I will never be able to explain this, he wants us. And he went to the nth degree. He went to the, to the longest, lowest pit in order to get us. And he came as a voluntary sacrifice. So when John is saying, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, I, I'm comforted because I promise that means it's me. If there's nobody that can say that I'm not included because it is the sins of the world, if I'm in the world, then I'm one that Jesus died for. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever believeth upon him shall not perish. So the kindness of God to look at me knowing my guilt and saving my soul makes me happy and it makes me work and it makes me alive and it makes me want to do something and it makes me want to tell somebody it changed me it changes you there's no dull there's no bored there's no yawn when you know that you should be dragged off by hell in the next breath as the next breath evaporates out of your nostrils you should be dragged to the pit and god saved you instead and will give nothing but delight forever Because your infinite bliss is tied to his infinite grace. And that is to his infinite glory. Forever you will say thank you, Jesus. Forever you will glorify him as the saints of God. Not because we are so squeaky clean. We aren't. Because God is. And he's the one who determines. He's the one that determines.
That barrier between man and God is gone. Jesus breathed out his last, and the temple curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. There is no more offense. When God looks at you, saved sinner, he is not mad at you. He is not offended by you. There's nothing that you did today or yesterday or tomorrow that will make him angry with you at all. He will discipline you like a child. And I promise, he's not an, he's not an abusive parent. If you had an abusive parent, I'm so sorry. God is not an abusive parent. God is a parent. And he will discipline you for your good. He will allow you to bear fruit. And he will prune you and it hurts. And he will let you sit in the hot and be right outside with you and saying, yes, I know how hot it is. Yes, I know I've been here before. And he will let you know that he loves you. He will speak to your, to your heart and allow you to know. The third thing, my third point, is that John calls us to behold him. He calls us. We are to look at him. We are to behold him. We are to know, perceive, not just see. We are to perceive what it means and do something about it. You don't watch the baby, the, the, the high chair fall over and not do anything. You don't just see the high chair fall over. It doesn't, it, that doesn't make any sense. You don't look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and just go, oh, look, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It, it prompts action. It causes you to do something. It causes a crisis in your heart. Something will happen as a result of your gaze. You will either accept or reject. It is critical. You, to, you can't realize when you share the gospel with someone, don't think that you're doing them a nice, nice. You are bringing them to a crisis. And in the moment, you will either smell like life to them or you will smell like death to them. Because when they behold the Lamb of God and accept it, they will accept it to their eternal glory. And when they look upon the Lamb of God and reject it, they will reject it to their eternal damnation. It is a crisis. You preach to the world. You preach to everyone that you are called to behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the Holy Spirit is kind. And you pray for people. There are people that you love more than you love yourself who have never, ever accepted the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And it breaks your heart. It makes you weep. It sends you to a puddle. You pray, you pray, you pray, you pray. You don't stop praying with your last breath. You pray. God is kind and he's strong. And he can do great things. But he tells you to behold. If you have eyes to see, let's see. If you have ears to hear, let's hear. That's what God says. We must exercise repentance. We must repent. We cannot be filthy and claim salvation. We cannot act like God's enemies and claim that we are cleaned and saved. We are God's ambassadors. We have been saved that we might turn around and tell other people to behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin. And it's a personal testimony. It's not a boxed spiel that someone taught us to say. It's not a, it's not a script that we memorize. It is something that spontaneously comes out of a heart that's been changed, who recognizes what God has done. So as such, we're called to turn to Jesus and trust him for our personal salvation.
Last thing I want to say. When the sacrifice of God's lamb is applied to our hearts by repentance and faith, we are at peace with the God that we offended. Peace. Peace. You are at peace with the God you've offended. Don't wallow in your offense. You're free. You're free. God has forgiven you. Move on. Don't wallow forever and ever. Those sins are horrible. They should never be spoken. But God has forgiven you. You stand up and you follow him. Second thing, you are indwelt with God's Holy Spirit that allows you to live powerfully. You may live like a godly person. You can. You can't just say, I'm a sinner. Sorry, this is who I am. No. You are new. All things are new. Everything is new. And he has given you the the spirit. The same spirit that Jesus lived in the spirit is the same spirit that lives in me. I promise you we can please God. We can please him in our actions. And so when I take my failures to God every day, every day, every day, every minute, every minute, God will turn around and give me rewards when he comes because there will be many minutes that I did let the Holy Spirit change me, and I will have reward for that. Now, I promise that if I intend on sinning, there's no more sacrifice for me. But if I hold to what Jesus did for me and simply accept that I have blown it and I come to him again and I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And the last thing I wrote down is we're promised eternal life. We're promised eternal life. It's the same as now. It's the same as now. This is from Isaiah 45. Look unto me. And be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Hallelujah.